Hello, and welcome to the Other Tradition Podcast, with your hosts, Dr. Richard Thomas and Lex Musta. This is where we revisit our history from the perspective of the Other Tradition, where extensive interracial cooperation has always been the driver of signal improvements in our race relations. We hope this encourages our listeners to reach out multiracially in their own efforts to continue America's storied other tradition. Enjoy. Greetings. I'm Lex Masta, a human amity worker, and I was introduced to the other tradition by my co-host, Dr. Richard Thomas, five years ago at the National Center for Race Amity at Wheelock College in Boston. The NCRA was founded by William Smith, who himself bravely helped desegregate college football in the southern United States at Wake Forest in 1964. In 2011, he reinstated National Race Amity Conferences into our nation's lifeblood. America's first Race Amity Conference was organized in 1921 through collaborative efforts led by Baha'is in Washington, D.C., following widespread racial pogroms across America. In May 2012, while attending the Reborn Conference, I had the chance to hear Dr. Thomas explain how he came to understand the concept of the other tradition as a catalyst for social change in a society experiencing daily racial injustices and inequities. I taught for about 38 years at, at Michigan State, and uh, uh, beginning in the early uh, uh, 1970s, I taught a course called uh, The History of uh, Ethnocentrism uh, and Racism. Uh, because I wanted students to understand uh, uh, ethnocentrism from a global historical perspective. And then uh, I spent time looking at uh, racism in the, uh, in, in the U.S. This other tradition approach came about through years and years of not only teaching but research. Whenever I was teaching um, the, uh, the course on the history of racism, I noticed several dynamics. One was that um, when the kids left the course, and my students were obviously very traumatized by all the history, especially when I would talk about uh, 100 years of lynching and, and, and what have you. And the black and white students, when they would leave, oftentimes uh, they couldn't get a handle on, on what they could do afterwards, okay? And so, you know, I, I did that for, for, for many, many years. Uh, and then um, there was also a period when I, uh, I had become a Baha'i. I, I joined the Baha'i faith in 1962 uh, and um, was very much involved in race relations and race amity and being involved in various aspects of, of, of race relations, Black Student Alliance at Michigan State, uh, and of course, you know, being traumatized by the riots of 1967 in Detroit, uh, you know, I was there. And I think that was one of the reasons why I became interested uh, in race relations. And so as I started teaching uh, about race relations, I discovered that I needed to broaden it, not to ignore, you know, the horrendous history of racism, but I needed to broaden it because there was something missing. And what was missing uh, was the interracial, multiracial uh, struggle for racial justice, okay? And it wasn't as if 
these things were hidden. They were there, but scholars over the years understandably tended to focus on, 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 on those aspects. But I needed to figure out how I could address these issues. Now, as a Baha'i, I noticed that there were all kinds of dynamics going on in the Baha'i community, that the Baha'i, notwithstanding its own, you know, uh, uh, challenges, uh, uh, had always been involved in trying to develop first an interracial and then a multiracial community. And so as a young uh, scholar, I would often ask myself, how could I replicate what's going on in the Baha'i community? The Baha'i community was like a laboratory for me. How could I replicate that in my classroom? Okay? And, and how could I use that as a, a research model not to impose upon the study of, of racism, but at least to, to have it as an organizing thing to look for other kinds of, of, of uh, you know, perspectives and, and what have you. So let me share with you uh, uh, several uh, things that led me to this. First, in, 19, in the 1980s, uh, early 1980s, uh, I was a young uh, a professor. Uh, I don't think I had tenure then. But I was working with two Baha'is and a non-Baha'i, and we wrote a book called Detroit, Race and Uneven Development. Uh, it was published by Temple University Press, and interestingly enough, even though it's an old, dated uh, book, uh, it's still being used in, in sociology classes. I think one of the reasons why it's still being used is because it was one of the first books that really dealt uh, 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 in some depth with the history of racism uh, in Detroit in the post-1940 uh, 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 period. Now, in, when we were working on that book, it was at the time when I was also trying to figure out how to look at this other tradition. And I can recall talking to the sociologist and talking to uh, the two Baha'is. One was my wife, who, who was a professor of urban planning, and one was uh, Joe Darden, who's a well-known uh, a scholar uh, in, in, in race relations. I was trying to, to uh, sort of explain to them the importance of not only working on or looking at racism in Detroit, but also looking at those <coughs> efforts of people to try to address racism. I didn't call it the other tradition then, but I felt obligated as a Baha'i to try and widen my research perspective, you know. Uh, and it wasn't difficult to do because there were all of these people out there actually doing things. So I wasn't coming up with some fiction, you see. But interestingly enough, there were colleagues both who were working on the book and who were not working on the book uh, who were arguing that, you know, you, there really is no history of interracial cooperation. I mean, come on, look at Detroit. I mean, you know, you're from Detroit, Richard. I mean, you should know better, you see. Uh, uh, but they were wrong, okay? And so I started uh, working on the chapter in the book called Racial Conflict and Cooperation, okay? And basically uh, pointing out to folk the role of interracial uh, organizations like Focus Hope, and I'll talk about them a little bit more, which was an organization started by uh, Father Cunningham and Eleanor Josephus right at uh, or during the post-1967 uh, riot. When that riot occurred, this minister uh, or this priest uh, uh, and um, his assistant began organizing this group. To this day, 
they are still around and they're still doing very important uh, things. Uh, also, I uh, talked about New Detroit, which was another coalition, uh, and uh, they are also still around. And this is well over 40, uh, 40 years, okay? And so these were the, these were the, the, um, the, the uh, sort of the, the starting point for this, you know, for looking at this other tradition. Now, one other point before I uh, go on. In the 1980s, uh, do you all recall the riots that occurred in, well, some of you might be too young, uh, but there were riots that took place in England in the 18, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in the 19, in the, in, no, in the 19, in the 1980s. Uh, I was teaching a course uh, um, uh, in England in 1976, uh, and they were sort of oblivious of, of you know, well, they, they weren't oblivious of race relations, but they didn't think it was a big thing. I was asked uh, uh, to return in 1981 along with uh, uh, Dean Joe Darton, uh, who was a Baha'i in Michigan State, uh, uh, and Milton Kilson from Harvard. Three uh, or four American scholars uh, were asked to, uh, uh, to, to visit the University of Warwick, where they were having a conference on race relations. I was asked primarily because of the work that I had done on Detroit. And my uh, paper basically focused on how interracial groups uh, formed after the riots of 43 and the riots of 67. And don't forget, these were the two worst race riots that had ever occurred in an American city. And so that's one reason why, you know, they, they, they asked me to, to come and, and, and give a talk. Interestingly enough, when I was given the talk about what happened after that, there was still a lot of resistance. You know, people were, were, were still understandably uh, doubtful that anything could happen after a riot. And I can recall that there were, you know, uh, Afro, uh, you, you know, call them Afro-Britishers or what have you, you know, you know uh, who were very concerned about, well, you know, things will never get right. Uh, and I don't see, you know, how you could say that these things really occurred uh, after the riots in 43 and 67. But the evidence was there. Uh, the question might have been how efficacious these efforts were, okay? But still, I felt that it was very important uh, to continue uh, uh, the work. Then in the early uh, uh, 90s, uh, friends, and I, uh, I decided to um, uh, uh, write another piece. This was the, the origins of the other tradition. It was called The Other Tradition, uh, in American Race Relations. This was published by the Association of Baha'i Studies. Uh, and it's, it, it really deals with the history of racism in the U.S. But one of the things that I tried to focus on here uh, in, this, uh, in this book, uh, I, was, I was trying to flesh out this notion of the other tradition. This is the first time that I did it. Now here is another um, a piece of this. Sage publication is a social science publication that asks uh, scholars of race relations to write, you know, certain books. And so they asked uh, uh, me to, uh, to write a book that would sort of expand this notion. Now, understand, friends, that if you are teaching black and white and Hispanic and Native American students, after you've done it for decades, you feel obligated at one point to make sure that, number one, 
they have some type of perspective on race that will sort of help them to engage in the struggle, okay? Uh, and secondly, you want them to understand something about this legacy. And so what this essentially is, uh, and it's very, you know, there's a lot more work that has to be done. But this is just a look uh, at some of these examples. I have about, uh, about 18, okay, uh, but just some of these examples that I've used over the years to inspire students to become involved uh, in, uh, in the struggle. The other thing um, that uh, I want you to keep in mind is that when you have young people depending on you to teach them about race relations, they're also dependent on you to give them some kind of map to engage in race relations. And one of the things that I was particularly concerned about is that my black and white students oftentimes were, were, were so upset, okay, uh, that they didn't quite know, you know, how to pull together a map, okay, or what map to follow. And so that led later on to our uh, development organization called the Multiracial Unity Leadership or, or Living Experience, and I'll talk about that uh, later on. So here, here are some of the objectives. Uh, uh, help students understand the historical and social significance, significance of the other tradition. Inspire students to engage in, and this is very important, in activities that promote cooperation among racially and culturally diverse peoples. Uh, help students recognize the tradition at work in the present and encourage them to become involved in projects that promote multiracial cooperation and unity. And encourage faculty members to focus some of their scholarly and teaching efforts on multiracial cooperation and unity. Now, I've noticed that whenever I've given this talk, people have understandably said, well, uh, you're talking about cooperation among people. Uh, are you just talking about friendship groups and, you know, people, you know, having coffee together and, and, and what have you? Uh, and what I tried to point out, that many of the major movements that have affected change in the society have been built upon this multiracial uh, unity and cooperation. And we will identify, you know, uh, several uh, of those, okay? This is also very important. Some of you might remember the conflict between black and Jewish faculty on college campuses when many uh, black student organizations uh, were bringing Minister Farrakhan to campus, okay? And so, and I had, you know, several students who were members of the Nation of Islam and, and what have you. Uh, but what we tried to do is to bring uh, Jewish and black faculty together to try to resolve that and discuss that, you see. And at one point, uh, I was teaching a course on black-Jewish relations uh, with the rabbi, you see. Uh, and it was, an, uh, here again, you know, another uh, effort uh, to address uh, uh, these issues. So, he, so uh, those are the, um, the various uh, uh, objectives. Also, um, I was very concerned about um, uh, looking at this other tradition as a research and teaching project, you know, understanding... Uh, expand the understanding of the racial history of the United States. And we're going to be trying to expand uh, uh, the history of, of racial relations in the United States for many years. But this other tradition is particularly important because we need to get a, uh, a, have a grasp on all of the organizations and institutions and people 
who have been trying to address the issues of racism. Does that make sense to you? Okay. All right. Um, and the other piece is provide models for white students to emulate. This, I think, is particularly important. If you want to have an effective coalition of blacks and whites working together or, or, or minorities, you know, majorities working together, you absolutely uh, have to have some models for them. Okay? They have to be able to look at history and say, okay, here are some models. My white students learned that there were white models throughout history that they could emulate. They could emulate the Grimke sisters, okay, from South Carolina, all right, uh, uh, the daughters of, of, of a slave owner uh, who became avid abolitionists, you see. Uh, they could, they could em emulate any number of people uh, from the civil rights movement, from the labor movement, and what have you. They needed to have heroes, all right. When I was teaching race relations for years, I didn't give them those he heroes, okay? Uh, and you can imagine they were sitting there and they were, you know, seeing pictures of lynching and other kinds of things. And, of course, you know, as a young professor, I was beating up, you know, I had my big afro and my dashiki, and so I was running it on them, okay? And they needed to understand it. But they needed some tools and perspective to be able to get out there and engage uh, 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 these issues. Uh, and when I look back over 30-something years of teaching, uh, I think one of, the, one of my students who I'm most proud of, and there's many others, uh, is a Lebanese-American uh, who was a professor at, at Michigan State. Uh, and she and I founded a program called the Multiracial Unity Living Experience, you know, Professor Jean Gazelle. Okay? Uh, and she's been doing great things, not only throughout the United States, but throughout Africa, you see. Uh, and... She was in my first class, I think it was about 1972 or, or 73, a little 17-year-old Lebanese-American young lady who remembered the riots uh, and was among several people uh, who took this class because they just needed to know something about race relations. But they also needed some tools, you see. Uh, and so models are particularly important. And then provide models to restore students of color trust and confidence in a protracted struggle for racial justice. And I want to emphasize this, the protracted struggle for racial justice and multiracial cooperation and unity. And it's, it's protracted. It's going to take a while. Okay? Uh, and this was particularly important because some of my, my, my uh, um, uh, African-American students were a bit reluctant to talk about the history of racial cooperation. And my, my, my uh, black uh, graduate students who helped me with the research, as they were doing the research, they gradually began to find, you know, models uh, that, that they could, you know, uh, appreciate, okay? Now, these are very selected historical examples of interracial and multiracial cooperation and unity and what we can learn from them. One of the things that we have to perhaps understand is the quality of race relations in the 17th century, Okay. What I found very interesting is that um, these two scholars pointed out uh, the what they call the possibility uh, of a genuine multiracial society became a reality during the years before Bacon's Rebellion. Now, what that says to me is that racism was not inevitable. And I think that is very important for students to understand this, okay, because uh, we have this mindset 
uh, that, well, you know, racism has always been a part of American society, which is the reason, you, you know, I'm sorry, let me say that uh, differently. Um, that racism has always been a part of human society and most certainly American society as, uh, as, as, as well. But, you know, we do know that there was a period in American history where there was a great deal of fluidity, that race hadn't quite consolidated yet, that the ideology hadn't quite, you know, developed. Uh, it was around in certain places. And that fluidity made it possible to have some relative degree of, of, of equality uh, among certain, uh, certain people. When we look at uh, Bacon's Rebellion, where we see black slaves and white servants, you know, fighting together, we realize that even though they were united by a common cause, that there was still some degree of inequality. But the main thing that we might want to think about is that why did they even come together to begin with? Okay, what brought them together? And when we think about the period of fluidity, where, for example, uh, you had some relative uh, equality uh, for, for several generations, then the questions become, how did racism take hold? How did it become an ideology? How did it become institutionalized? Now, for students, this is important to understand only because they need to know that there's always periods of fluidity in a society where things can happen, which is the reason why when I, when I was at, at, at Warwick, I tried to point out to folks the periods of fluidity after the riots of 43 and the riots of 67, where organizations began, notwithstanding all of the, the conflict, uh, to form alliances and affect some change. Now this is, here again, this is why this other tradition of history is important. Most certainly you had all kinds of racism during this period. But what do we learn from this? One of the things we learned from this is that when you remember that World War II uh, was a period where you had segregated units, right? Okay. What caused black and white soldiers to fight together in the Continental Army. Okay. George Washington earlier didn't want to have any blacks involved. The blacks petitioned him and, and said that they wanted to, be, to become involved. But at the same time, it was because Lord Dunmore, a British general, had also uh, convinced, or not convinced, but had, had been approached by blacks. And, and so uh, uh, Lord Dunmore had black soldiers fighting on the side of the British. So you had these two, these two groups of, uh, of, of blacks. Now, this integrate, integrated uh, war experience contributed to the emergence of the anti-slavery movement. You know, it played a very important role. Now, the thing about it is that that generation of black and white soldiers, they, they obviously had different motives, okay? But the main thing is that they were working together for, let us say, you know, for one, for one purpose, even though there were some, <laughs> you know, different motives. Um, and after that period of war, you had uh, the African-American slaves being freed by what they called a process of manumission. Okay, these were some of the first uh, uh, free slaves. And for a while, you had some white soldiers uh, who had a sense of black humanity. All right. Now, we know that much of that was lost, but still it raises questions about how racism formed and how there were pockets of, of interracial uh, cooperation 
that need you know that needed to be uh, looked at. The anti slavery the anti slavery movement. This was the first large scale opportunity for the development of black white cooperation in the long struggle for racial justice, interracial cooperation in the Underground Railroad, and racial tension uh, tensions as a developmental stage of anti of, of the anti slavery movement. I think that this is particularly important because even though uh, the anti-slavery movement was the first interracial uh, uh, movement for racial justice, and we have to put racial justice in, in, um, in quotes because we know that there were some abolitionists uh, who were anti-slavery but who were not for, for equality of, of blacks and whites. Okay? And we know that there was also tension between you know, uh, uh, abolitionists like... Fred Douglas. We don't know again. Yeah. So we know there was some. We know that there was some tension between them, and so many people will raise the question uh, about uh, the the legitimacy of of the anti-slavery movement as a major movement of white cooperation. Uh, I mean, of interracial cooperation. But what we would say is that look, most certainly you you saw blacks and whites cooperating in this movement, and most certainly blacks benefited a great deal uh, from it. Uh, but still, uh, it was a movement that was at a certain developmental stage. It was far from perfect, uh, and it has all, it had all kinds of flaws. But we have to consider it as part of this history of the, of the other tradition. This is this is a model or I should say um, an example that some black, uh, black and white students tended to uh, really internalize. The black students would look at this and say, well, you know, John Brown is an example of the degree of personal commitment to end slavery. Maybe we need this type of commitment from, from our white uh, uh, friends today. So they would, they would make, they would make that, that, that argument. And white students uh, would feel redeemed by John Brown because they would say, you know, we have somebody in our history who really played a very important role to the degree that he gave his life and the life of, uh, uh, of his sons. I, would, I used to take my students uh, to um, a certain historical site in Detroit. As you know, Detroit was a very important part of the Underground Railroad. Uh, the slave would, would escape to Detroit and then they would cross the Detroit River to Canada. And I had a little um, pilgrimage I would go through with my students. We would go to the historic site where, where blacks would cross the, you know, where they crossed the river, okay, with the help of black and white abolitionists in Detroit. And then we would go to Chatham, cross the river, and we would visit some of the, the churches. And it was very emotional for me as a historian. Uh, and sometimes my students would look at me and say, oh, my gosh, he's getting all romantic and, and what have you. But I would have to say to them, you know, this is where John Brown met with Fred Douglas. Okay, and this is where they, you know, they were thinking about planning the, uh, or whether, you know, where John Brown was trying to get some people to help him, you know, uh, plan this, uh, this revolution or this revolt at Harper's uh, Ferry. And, of course, uh, uh, Douglas wasn't interested in it, you see, um, but we, we, we talked, we, you know, we, we, we talked about this. This is raising the bar in the interracial struggle for racial justice in the minds of blacks and whites. This is the point at which people were saying abolitionists and anti-abolitionists uh, 
how far is this going to go? You see, John Brown raised the bar, you see. And, and my white students would look at this and say, okay, he's our hero. And the black students would say, okay, this is one example. Might be an exception, but this is, this is an example of what some whites are willing to do. The abolitionist movement as, as sort of a developmental kind of a thing. You know, beginning with some people who were only interested in moral suasion. You know, you had that group of abolitionists who were saying basically, well, let's, let's just kind of pray and let's just, you know, try to persuade people through moral suasion. And then later on, uh, you had, well, William Lord Garrison was in that camp as well. And then later on, William Lord Garrison became a little bit more radical uh, and started talking about the importance of, of really protesting and forcing the hand. And then you had John Brown, you see. And, and the importance of this is that for people looking at, the, at the, the commitment of whites to this struggle, all, with all the warts and blemishes and, and what have you, uh, it's important to, um, uh, to understand uh, John Brown's role. One other thing, when I was, in, when I was an undergraduate, and, and, but John Brown was demonized in the historical literature. I was, I, was, I was trained as an undergraduate to think of him as really weird. You know, any white guy who would commit you know, his life and the life of his family, his, his sons, to help black folk, to free black folk. You see, you must be sick. Okay, so that was my orientation. Until I got into graduate school, and then there was a whole new generation of research on, on John Brown. You see, and it's not justifying what he, what he did. It's that we're trying to understand the evolution of black-white cooperation in the pursuit of racial justice. And so let, let me say this just in, in, in terms of professional honesty. Historians, they have little niches. <laughs> All, you know, scholars, they have niches of expertise. Of okay. And when I, when I heard Celeste talking about <clears throat> friends, when I was in the history department who were specialists in slavery, and they would deal with all the nuances and, and, and what have you, and I could imagine that some of them uh, would probably say, well, okay, if we're if we're looking at this within the context of of, of slavery, uh, and we're comparing, you know, slave masters, then we can deal with nuance. Okay, but what I'm trying to do with this research, I'm trying to understand the history of interracial multiracial unity for racial justice. Okay, now here's another example. The Civil War Alliance of Black Soldiers and White Officers. Okay? Interracial experience in war influenced racial attitudes of white officers. Black soldiers developed trust in and respect for white officers. Kessler talks about how with the organization of men and women, Negro and white, foreign-born and Native American, with no uh, practice of religion or political discrimination, the Knights of Labor became more than a labor union, but a popular movement. Now, that's during the post-Civil War period. So you have two important periods here. You've got the Civil War Alliance of Black Soldiers and White Officers. That, that's one example. Uh, and then you've got the post-Civil War period, and you guys are already familiar with Reconstruction and some of the problems there and the short attempt at interracial democracy. And here again, this is a an incredible period to study. Then you have the Knights of Labor, uh, and that sort of re reflects the role of, um, of black and white workers uh, in one of the first uh, labor 
organizations. And so these examples, as, 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 as we look at these chain of examples, do you all see any particular common theme uh, running through them uh, so far? It forced, it, you know, these crises forced uh, folk to come together, okay? Uh, it wasn't always as permanent as we would like, but at least it showed some degree of, uh, of, uh, of interaction. Everybody knows about the um, NAACP uh, and the, um, how this was, and still is uh, one of the oldest uh, civil rights uh, organizations. The longest record of interracial and multiracial cooperation and, and unity. It was called the, the New Abolitionists. You see, you have Morfield Story and uh, Mary White Ovington and, and W.B. Du Bois, and there was still some conflict within the NAACP among, you know, um, the various uh, uh, black and white uh, members. And you all know the, uh, the conflict that W.B. Du Bois had uh, with some of the officers of the NAACP. But what does it represent? It represents here again a developmental phase of interracial a cooperation. The Baha'i, the Baha'i community is another model. Before I retired, I taught a course called uh, the, um, the History of a Multiracial Faith Community, uh, Race Relations in the Baha'i Community, you know, in the, in, in the 20th century. And basically, uh, you know, I was, uh, it was a history seminar with seniors, and I was trying to uh, show them a model uh, of a faith organization and some of the struggles that it uh, had as it was trying to develop a, a multiracial uh, society, you see. These are two interesting examples. When we look at this interracial coalition in the Democratic Party, we see two very important features that, that, that uh, we need to understand. One is white political expediency, okay? You have all of these African Americans migrating north, right? during World War I and uh, uh, sizing up uh, or, de or developing sizable communities uh, in northern areas. And so obviously the Democratic Party in the 1930s was looking to tap into that. And then black demands within the coalition that would take place in the 40s and the 50s uh, and what have you. In this, in this Sage book, uh, I, I talk about uh, black expectations and demands within these coalitions. I can't, you know, talk about all that, that now uh, because I think it's very important to understand that as we see the development of these multiracial, you know, uh, coalitions and organizations, what have you, within these organizations and coalitions, there's all kinds of tension going on, you see. And that's important to understand because uh, we can't assume that just because you have blacks and whites working together that you don't have that tension. You see, and so when we were doing research on the book, uh, it became clear as we were having these weekly seminars uh, to uh, tease these things out. You know, the students would come in and they would say, you know, uh, uh, you're talking about, let's say, the abolitionists, but these are some issues, you know, that was going on within the abolitionist uh, movement. Or you're talking about the labor movement, interracial cooperation in the labor movement, the Knights of Labor uh, and, and, and the wobblies, you see, uh, whatever. But still, there were these tensions. So I don't want to give people the impression, and we didn't want to give people the impression, that we was just sort of Pollyannish talking about, well, people were just working together throughout this, this history. You have that, but you also have 
these developmental tensions and what have you. Same thing happened in the Baha'i faith. The early years of the Baha'i community, for example, in Washington, D.C., uh, experienced challenges with racial segregation, you see. Uh, and these things had to be, had to be worked out, uh, you know, throughout the, uh, uh, the years. And then you had, um, um, even though some people don't like to put this within this, uh, this framework, but the American Communist Party played a very important role in interracial uh, uh, cooperation. You know, we think of historians like Abthacker, you know, uh, Herbert Abthacker, who for years um, uh, published the documentary history of African Americans. A great history. Uh, uh, might have been, you know, some of the other works might have been skewed a bit, but, but uh, he was a very important uh, historian. They represented sort of a form of radical interracialism, you see. And they tended to be critical of other interracial uh, organizations. But interestingly enough, they influenced the policy of the Congress of Industrial Unions. When you really have to think of the union movement in the 1930s, you cannot dismiss the role of the communists. So black and white communists, you know, played a very important role. The John Lewis, president of the CIO, knowingly hired members of the Communist Party to work as organizers primarily because of their special interest in the unity of black and white labor and their achievement of such unity uh, in the union set up by the Trade Union uh, Unity League. And that, you know, that's something to think about. And people who deal with race relations, sometimes they want to get rid of the, you know, uh, uh, the Communist Party and the Socialist Party, but they're part of this history, you see. And so we have to uh, uh, remember uh, the role that, they, that they've played, you see. And then you have the Highlander uh, Folk School, uh, developed a residential educational program designed to help build a broad-based, racially integrated, politically active labor movement in the South. Fully integrated workshop in 1942. In 1953, uh, school changed focus from labor to civil rights movement. We might have certain views about progressive movements in the South, but here again we see several uh, uh, organizations. Here we have the Southern Conference for Human Welfare uh, and the Southern Conference, uh, Southern Conference Educational Fund, uh, uh, founded in 1948. The Southern Conference for Human Welfare, founded by Southern black and white liberals in Birmingham, Alabama, the primary purpose helps Southern whites to understand that to remove limitations on its black citizens was to ensure the region's uh, greater uh, prosperity recommended radical reform, abolish, uh, 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 they recommended to abolish the poll tax, and in 1948 passed torch to the Southern Conference Educational Fund. Uh, the Southern Con Conference Educational Fund, uh, founded in 1948, played a key role in the integration of schools, particularly in higher education, and voter registration dr drive uh, uh, in, the, in the South. This is, this is one... Uh, Example that I'm particularly uh, uh, just very fond of. The Church for the Fellowship of All People in San Francisco, founded in 1944, the nation's first interracial, uh, interfaith uh, congregation. Uh, they might be kind of off, you know, there, because we could say that the Baha'i faith was probably, uh, uh, you know, one of the, the first. Um, uh, the mission to share in the spiritual growth and ethical awareness of men and women of 
varied national, cultural, racial, and creedal uh, heritage united in a religious fellowship. Co-founder Howard Thurman. Okay. A very, very famous black theologian. One of the most famous, well-known black theologians. He's deceased now. And of course, you know about the, uh, the civil rights movement. One of the things that excited my generation in the 1960s, even though we were conflicted uh, because we had both Malcolm X as our hero, you see, and Martin Luther King as, you know, so we were, we were conflicted in the, uh, uh, in the 60s. But, you, you know, this notion of the beloved community uh, really meant a lot uh, to us. Uh, I think I told some of you about when uh, 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 black and white uh, Baha'i youth went to uh, Greenville, South Carolina uh, in 1964, you see, and the black Baha'i stayed with the white Baha'is, um, and, and, and the white Baha'is stayed with the black Baha'is, and it was my first uh, extended visit to the South, and I was petrified. I was very, very nervous, and I can say this now, uh, so you might have to, you know, uh, but I remember staying with a white Baha'i uh, pediatrician and lawyer, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, lock their doors. They said, you know, people, you know, some people pass through, they don't have any place to stay, you know. And, and black folk, you know, some black people, when they pass through, they don't have any place to stay, so we leave the doors open. Well, I'm this kid from Detroit, you see, uh, 1964, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm in the South, and I don't know about this. And at that time, the Klan, you know, you had Jonestown, you know, in, in that area, and you also had the Klan. And sometimes they would, they would send, you know, menacing notes to us, you know, when we were having a little black and white uh, meeting. And so, friends, forgive me. I'm confessing now, 40-something years later. Uh, I would go down when, when they were asleep. I would lock the door. I said, I, said, I, said, I said, maybe they can just knock a little. But I, can't, I cannot, you know, this is, I'm, I'm the only black person in this all-white household, you see. And I just got to, you know. So I'll just listen, and if I hear somebody, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come. But that, that was a very important um, uh, uh, experience. Um, and um, this notion of the beloved community meant a lot to us. Uh, Northern white students working in the South, the Freedom Summer of 64. Uh, and that's one reason why we, you know, some of us uh, went there. And there's some other stories that, you know, I, maybe I can, I can share with you. Multiracial, multi-faith freedom marches, the impact of the black movement on interracialism, you see, in civil rights uh, 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 organizations. And so this movement is important mainly for my generation because it so informed our notion of race relations, and it was our first example of interracial cooperation. I remember one Sunday in uh, 19, summer of 1964, this was, we didn't know if those three civil rights workers, you know, uh, uh, had died. They had gone missing. But this was also the summer when they, when, when in Athens, Georgia, they killed that black captain. And so there was a lot of violence going on. And I can recall uh, David Rue, bless him, who had just passed. I mean, Doug Rue, Doug Rue. Doug Rue and I decided, uh, Doug was a white Baha'i, we decided that we were going to go to a restaurant and have breakfast, you see. And we figured if we went on Sundays, you know, uh, the people wouldn't, uh, 
we should have seen this. You know, we, we, we didn't know what. We were probably naive, but we figured, we figured they wouldn't have so much dissonance. You know? They probably would have just dragged. But we sat there. You know, you're just tall, you know, sort of blinded, you know, white behind, you know, kid and, and this black kid from Detroit. And we're sitting there and I and I could see the I could see the cooks, the black cooks kind of looking out. But what was so interesting was that the white waitress came through and served us and smiled at us. OK, but, you know, that was sort of our little thing in, in, in 1964, experiencing or, or trying to make sense of uh, or to validate uh, interracial cooperation in the Baha'i faith in that setting because it was easy to sit around and sing and you know and play the good times we were doing up north okay but when we got down there with southern with southern black southern and white black Baha'is they were on the front lines and it was it was really something to you know to have that experience and they were a part of this beloved community because they had been there for decades uh, doing you know doing that uh, doing that work, you see. Thank you for joining us on this Other Tradition podcast. It is brought to you by DC Time Travel Tours, where you experience history. <laughs>